Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What is the relationship between God and the dead? Why are some places more haunted than others? Is it really possible to, quote, lay people to rest or, quote, help them cross over? Hello, and welcome to the 916th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, coming to you from WOON, AM, and FM Radio in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live, on YouTube, and via TuneIn.com. I'm Ben, and those varied questions came from my co-host, partner in Paranormal Adventures, and dad, Paul, who's also doubling as our guest for today. Well, yes, that's because we're observing the 50th anniversary of the Village of Voices case, which I'm told by other researchers is now considered a classic of American paranormal history. For this show, I tried to locate other participants in this case, two of whom became priests, Joseph Latender and Alvin LeBlanc. I was unable to reach either of them. Uh, The only other one I had contact with since the case, Mike Devon, later became a police chief in North Carolina. Uh, Some years ago, the last time I talked with him, Mike told me his children grew up with stories of the Village of Voices. There must have been a lot of scared kids. I I couldn't reach him either. Uh, Remember, all this took place half a century ago, so I'm lucky I'm here myself. As an in-depth student of theology, Joseph Latender has been on the show before, albeit on a different subject. On November 13th, 2016, he was our guest on show number 666 to discuss, wait for it, the biblical number 666. So I guess it's, uh, it, it is kind of interesting that it's the 50th anniversary of all of this. And I, I have very, very vivid memories of my childhood. You, you coming to my, my middle school and on your, uh, <laughs> on your slide projector, setting huh. it up in the, in the school library and, uh, telling scary stories to the kids. And it wasn't even really like scary stories now that I'm like looking back on it, but like kids were like freaked out by it. But yeah, you had a very, very, um, oh, you have a little buddy crawling on you. On, your, on, your, on, your, on your right, on your right. No, he won't eat much. Well, yeah. I mean, he's just a jumping spider. He's just jumping on your right arm. Just a heads up. Spooky. Well, the whole world doesn't need to know that. No, but I'm just letting you know because he's getting closer and closer to your face. <laughs> so live radio, everybody. This is, that's what this is. So. Anyway, so this Village of Voices was your first actual paranormal case in the field. Is that correct? It is correct, and it was a while before we got into the field. And by the way, I remember that that was a Good Shepherd school over here in Woonsocket. Mm. And Mr. Poitras, Larry Poitras, said, I don't know at whose instigation, but had invited me to come and talk during the lockdowns where the students would uh, would be there. And um, I guess uh, th- this case figured prominently in those discussions, and I guess the kids were so freaked, uh, Larry eventually asked me not, not, to, sh- not to come. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I do remember that, and I yeah. thought that was actually really funny. <laughs> but uh, I guess you have to go back to the beginning. Um, my early interest in, in ghosts and, pur- and purgatory, the notion of purgatory, which was uh, the old, well, it still exists, I guess, and they don't talk much about it, the Roman Catholic idea that if you're not quite bad enough to go to hell, not quite good enough to go to heaven, you go to purgatory uh, to be purged, hence the name, uh, and then you can get into heaven and also satisfy the Western mania for pigeonholing everything. Um, and, but the uh, the early interest in, in, in this sort of thing started with the loss of my father, your grandfather, uh, in, when I was seven years old. A very good man. 
had had heart disease and was at home with with me when while my mother worked at a time when that was just very very rare if if done at all uh the year if 1950s uh and uh, that that period there but um i was studying for the priesthood by the time i was uh, 14 when you could still do that my brother was ordained to the priesthood uh, your uncle bob in uh, 1963 and all the while i'm wondering you know where is my father is there any theological light that can be shed on that so in um, 1970, I happened to see an article in the Hartford Current about a man named Harry Chase and the weird photographs he was taking at a place in Pomfret, Connecticut that was an abandoned village long overtaken by the, by the forest. And I said, wow, this is interesting. Uh, I'd been interested in the ghost thing before, and I just wasn't um, prepared you know, for, for where to start. How to research this? I said, "Gee, this sounds like a place we could visit, or I could visit, and see if these are souls in purgatory." You know, so, sort of take a uh, a look at that and see if it held water. Well, uh, throughout the rest of 1970 and into 1971, I researched this this area historically. Um, I got in touch with Harry Chase, and we began a correspondence. Harry. Uh, was a fellow who lived in Pomfret, Connecticut, and he was uh, one of those wonderful local historians that no town should be without. He knew um, where George Washington was in reference to Pomfret and Putnam, uh, which is in our listening area, by the way. Uh, more than anyone else, he knew who did what to whom and what happened when and uh, that sort of thing. So uh, he was a, proved to be a, a great correspondent and became a very good friend. So... Uh, I did notice too that this was not the first article on the what was known locally as the lost village, uh, the uh, lost settlement or the lost village of the hills, and sometimes the village of voices. Um, it, there had been another article in 1956 when I was three years old, and Harry Chase was 53, and he he figured in that article, but it was written from a very jocular point of view. The uh, reported didn't take it very seriously, uh, and there were some photos um, of which I now have the originals that were printed in the Hartford Current at that point. But the article in 1970 was much more serious. So um, the um, after the better part of a year researching the site and learning what little I could about the Catholic perspective on ghosts, which is virtually non-existent, and corresponding with Harry, uh, I decided it was the perfect place to try this earthbound spirits as souls and purgatory thing. There was one book in the seminary library, which had thousands of books, one lonely book, and it was called Ghosts and Poltergeists by uh, a British Jesuit priest known as Herbert Thurston. And it had been written um, in the early 50s, first published in the early 50s, and the same year I was born, as a matter of fact, 53. And uh, there wasn't much, there was a lot of inter- there were a lot of interesting cases in there, but uh, very few of which Thurston was himself involved with. So I wanted firsthand accounts from priests, and there just really weren't any to be had, at least not at the St. Thomas Seminary Library in Connecticut. So the village itself, uh, there were two main people who were involved, and one was uh, had the, rejoiced in the name Darius Higginbottom. Uh, probably born in Wales about 1750, 
and he seems to have been a deserter from the British Army who fled Cranston here in Rhode Island, about 40 miles to the east of this place, uh, for Pomfret to avoid separation from his American bride. That was very common in those days, even during the Revolutionary War. Uh, the average British regular soldier was taken from the poorest of the poor and had very little to lose whether he stayed here or went home. Now, Jonathan Randall uh, was uh, a different sort of fish. Uh, he was born in Providence, Rhode Island, about 1750, and uh, the Randalls were a lot more uh, affluent than the Higginbottoms. Randall was a gentleman farmer, a uh, prominent citizen. In fact, he represented Pomfret at the Constitutional Convention in Hartford in 1788, called to decide whether the state should ratify the new Constitution of the United States. Uh, he was one of many who feared an overbearing federal government, and Randall voted against the Constitution. Um, if he could see the country today, uh, he might have had his opinion confirmed. Nevertheless, uh, the Higginbottoms and Randalls established the little mill village th that we were to investigate nearly 200 years later. Uh, the mill was located on adjacent Nightingale Brook, and built uh, they, they built a small mill to make spinning wheels. There was also some farming going on. Now, according to Harry Chase, they named their settlement Barra Hack. Barra Hack, very strange name, in the ancient Kimrick language of Wales. Uh, he said it's the place where we break bread. Now, having a, a, a very avid interest in languages, I researched that to death. Barra is indeed bread in the Kimrick language, but hack, I can't find anywhere as a Kimrick word. Uh, break bread would be Tori Barra. So I don't know where Harry got that, but uh, I've never seen any anything to dispute that that was the name. But any, anyway, that's what Harry said. The Village of Voices sobriquet came from the fact that people from the early 20th century onward reported hearing people of all ages whom they couldn't see talking there. Now, the place was occupied from about the Revolutionary War uh, to the uh, just the last years of the 19th century, from what I can find out. And um, the first reference that I've ever found to the, the Voices was in the 1920s book uh, by Odell Shepard, who was a professor at Trinity College in Hartford, where I did graduate work, in the, but not in the 1920s. And he um, had taken a walking tour of Connecticut, and, and he came upon this lost village. As a matter of fact, there, there's a kind of a, a quaint old sketch of him sitting by a tree uh, there in the Pomfret settlement and uh, writing or reading. But in any case, he said that people would hear the voices of those who were long dead. Uh, they would hear uh, farm uh, sounds, things of that kind. And uh, he said that th these had, uh, with the way he put it poetically, somehow got round the wall of time. And uh, that's something I remembered uh, later on in, in my life when uh, I would contemplate this case. Anyway, so here we are, August 27th, 1971. Harry Chase was in our entourage, and six of us, mostly uh, seminary classmates of mine, arrived at the Lost Village, now covered by Second Growth Woodland. Uh, those who are watching the video uh, can see uh, some of the group there. The upper pictures uh, would be from that first August case. Uh, for those who are, for those who do not have the video feed, uh, you can go to behindtheparanormal.com, 
the Talking Points tab, and then you'll see 2021 shows, and this is right at the top. On the upper left is the article I first saw in the Hartford Current. In the middle is, uh, believe it or not, that's me in the upper left, and then Harry Chase to the right and two of the fellows who came with us. So that you can look at those as you, uh, as you are able to. Uh, there was um, an old, uh, all covered by Second Growth Woodland at this point, there was an old cart path, cellar holes where houses had been, and down the path and up a hill, a little cemetery. Uh, but there was a lot more, and we were aware of it right off the bat. Now, as soon as we walked in there, and it was a hot August day, there wasn't a single bird, there wasn't a single bug, but we could hear things. We could hear people talking. Uh, farm implements, uh, you know, banging together. We could hear dogs, cows, as if it was a normal day in the life of some farming community somewhere or somewhere else. And uh, it struck me, uh, in later cases, it usually takes time for the area to get used to your chemistry of you being there, particularly in quote-unquote haunted houses. But th- this just started to happen right off the bat, as if we walked into a different world. We explored and mapped the place. Uh, it was pri- it was private property, but it was not posted. Uh, at the time, you, it was kind of an understanding, at least among people I knew, that you know you could respectfully uh, walk through a property if it was not posted with no trespassing signs. Uh, but we made it a point not to sleep there until we got the permission of the property owner, whom I had not uh, become acquainted with yet. So we explored and mapped the place. Uh, the first major event was in the evening, that evening, when uh, we were standing above what had been the mill site on Nightingale Brook, and we heard the voices of children. And they weren't just the voices of children. They, they, were, they were moving very rapidly up and down the brook. Very odd. And at this point, uh, I didn't know about what I would know about later, that there can be very odd spatial relationships when you have these manifestations. Uh, over the years, I've dealt with uh, entities or people that who seem to be up by the ceiling or down in the floor. These the spatial relationships don't seem to correspond necessarily from what we believe are parallel world to parallel world. So uh, we were unable to, uh, we all heard this, and there were six of us, and it seemed that the, these voices were moving rapidly up and down Nightingale Brook as if they were in a car. But there, was, there wasn't any road anywhere nearby, no homes, nothing. It was all just woods. And uh, <clears throat> we uh, attempted to record this. Now, remember, that this is 1971. The high technology of the day is not like it is today in, quote, unquote, ghost hunting. We had a couple of um, Instamatic Kodak cameras that were high tech for the time because you didn't have to wind the film. You just threw a cartridge into the camera and shut the back of it and hope it worked. Uh, and we also had a cassette tape recorder. Those of our older vintage will remember cassette tapes. Um, and we uh, turned that on. And I guess it was kind of an electronic voice phenomenon in reverse. Uh, it, we heard it, but it did not record. Very often EVPs, as they're called, maybe Ben could say something about this, uh, electronic voice phenomena, uh, you know, th- they, they will record, but you can't hear them with the naked ear. Yeah, typically that's that's kind of how how it comes across. Um, is that you, there'll be tiny, almost inaudible sounds that'll be picked up, and then you know you could raise the volume on something, and you should 
you may or may not be able to hear something as something like a voice. But backwards, that is actually really interesting where you can hear it, but it doesn't record. Yeah. Uh, now, maybe the machine wasn't sensitive enough or whatever, but it was very clear. Uh, it, we recorded the Katie dids that were, you know, starting in at that time of year and that sort of thing, but not, not the, uh, the voices. <clears throat> Excuse me. So it was, uh, there was more to it than what I have written uh, that I about this until 2016. Ben and I have the book uh, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong. I don't know. Yeah, there, and uh, we've shown this before. And uh, that was the first time I told the whole story of this case because, remember, I was a seminary student. I was studying for the priesthood. I was on hot water as it was for being interested in the paranormal. They did not like this activity, the faculty of the seminary. And uh, <clears throat> that was uh, it. Eventually, got me thrown out uh, some a few years later, uh, so I was never ordained to the priesthood. But in any case, uh, I began to have things that would have gotten me in real trouble right then and there. I had certain certainties, as it were, about who these children are or were. I have always uh, hesitated to say this or write about it because I'm always advising people not to do the medium thing because it's dangerous and it sounds as though I were doing it myself. But I couldn't help it. I just apprehended these things. Now, these were feelings I did not pay. I rejected it. I did not pay any attention to them because it was not Catholic uh, to do that. Uh, Catholics are not supposed to be engaged in medium. A lot of them are. But at the time, I took that spirituality very seriously, and I did not pay any attention to these impressions. I knew names of some of these children. Uh, it was as if the, the, they didn't seem like ghosts at all. They seemed like people. And uh, now, of course, uh, the, the ghost uh, researchers in the audience were jumping up and down, aha, a, a residual haunting. In other words, you've got stuff from the past supposedly recorded on the environment that plays back to a mind or brain that, that is attuned to it, uh, and all of us apparently were. Uh, I was an early advocate of that theory, uh, but I don't, I, it's been a very, very long time since I believed any of that. Uh, I think we were, <clears throat> simply because I, I've been able to change things that were long-standing residual hauntings, quote-unquote, and uh, so how could they be residual if I could go in and change them? What I think was happening, not at least looking back on it now, was that we were experiencing the real people uh, across a, a boundary of a parallel world where it was still 1799, say, or 1850. And I think that that is literally what had happened. I think that that's good physics today. And um, I don't think it had anything to do with dead people. I think anything that's possible in the multiverse uh, does exist somewhere or somewhere, and death is not one of those things that are possible, simply because there are so many versions of the worlds and the people in it. Uh, we've talked about that numerous times on, the sh- on many other shows, and you can look it up uh, in our books or websites. So anyway, uh, another wrinkle to this was later on. Uh, now, the Enos, uh, the name doesn't sound like it, but it's an old Connecticut Yankee family. My father used to say, oh, we're swamp Yankees, right? Now, many years later, after this case, I found out that the Enos and the Randalls of Pomfret are not very distant cousins. Closer to relatives than strangers, yeah. I think uh, one of the reasons I was interested in, in finding out if 
blood relatives uh, have similar reactions to paranormal situations, which of course eventually led to Ben being involved in the work here, mm. was uh, <clears throat> that experience in Pomfret uh, when I found out that we were related to these people. Um, was I receiving so much information, as it were, because I'm so connected w- with the people uh, from the what was we thought was the past at the time? So maybe uh, I think that that there might be something to that. So again, officially, Catholics believe in demons, not ghosts necessarily. Uh, there are no specific teachings of it that I'm aware of. Uh, as I say, I could only find that one lonely book. Uh, by Father Father Thurston in the seminary library. Now, the next day after this uh, voice experience with the children was Sunday. Uh, like good seminarians, we went to church, uh, then spent uh, at the um, Most Holy Trinity Church in Pomfret, and then spent much of the day at the uh, Village of Voices exploring and noting the sounds of activity and activity. Uh, the night uh, of that day, we uh, staked out the cemetery. It was... Um, we have to allow for the fact that none of the none of us had ever done this before. We had tried to have some discipline of thinking here, but it was difficult again being in a completely unknown situation. Uh, we did see bluish streaks and orbs, as we would call them today, moving through the trees. Things that Harry Chase had had photographs of uh, back to the 1940s. Uh, there was a face at one point hovering above the stone wall on the far side of the cemetery. Uh, four of us who were staked out in different positions saw this and reported it, so presumably something was there. And there's a re- relatively uh, well-known photograph now for those who are uh, looking at the uh, the webpage, the talking points, or the video feed right now on the, on the right. There is a photograph of the cemetery uh, that we took the first afternoon we were there. And uh, the, the, the night... Of the the day we were in, you know, we were straight staking out the cemetery. You, we actually saw this with the naked eye. It looks just like a baby, almost a Renaissance carving of a baby. You'd see uh, in, on a fountain or, or, or a tomb or something lying in the tree. Really weird. I mean, what, what's the, what would this be doing in a tree? However, many years later, I came across a book by a woman named Griggs, who was a local historian, Susan J. Griggs. And the book was Folklore and Firesides of Pomfret, Hampton, and Vicinity, of which I I eventually got a copy. And that sent a chill through me because uh, she said that um, people would avoid going to this cemetery because of ghosts who sat at night in a certain elm tree near the cemetery. And this was an elm tree. I I have a thing for trees and I happen to notice it was an elm tree. So this was really strange. This is something people supposedly saw 200 years before we were there. And uh, here's something that was reported in a book uh, from decades before we were there. So uh, whatever this is, it sure looks like a baby. Now, in those days, uh, even then, we were very careful with photography. Uh, we were associated, in a sense, I, I knew the guy who owned the lab, uh, in East Hartford, Connecticut, where I was from. And uh, the photo lab was able to take the negative of the, you know, today you just have the digital media, but th- those days we had negatives. And they could look at something and, and said, well, th- this is an anomaly or this is an extra. This is something that shouldn't really be in the photo, but we don't really know what it is. Uh, reflections, they can tell. Lens effects, they can tell. But this particular baby in the tree sort of thing, uh, they didn't know what it was. 
Now, nobody, now no lab can say, well, this is a ghost or this is that. But uh, they just uh, don't, um, they were able to say that they didn't know what it was. So we thought that was interesting. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, exhausted, we reluctantly withdrew at about uh, 10.30 that night. So uh, thus ended the first expedition. There were several. Uh, I was confused. These phenomena, the voices and everything, were so physical. You know, how does a ghost, is supposed to be a spirit, utter sounds when they don't have any vocal cords? You know, no, no body or anything. Uh, purgatory? I mean, these people didn't seem to be dead at all, never mind in some kind of purgatory. And again, uh, the residual haunting theory, I think, just wasn't good enough. I mean, recorded on what? Uh, I think that 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 theory is based on uh, just a a, a grasping at straws because they don't know what else uh, to to use to explain these phenomena. And uh, things were only really just beginning in this case, but um, we uh, had a lot to think about. And we got back and we certainly saw that photograph too that was uh, had to be developed uh, at the lab uh, with this baby and the tree sort of thing. So the second trip was October 30th and 31st, and we'll get into that as uh, soon as we get through our break here. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno at WON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Autumn Blackstone Valley. And we'll be right back with more Tales of the Village of Voices. night is alive. Join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to The Kingdom of Nye, hosted by Heather Wade, the finest in late night talk. Listen live free weeknights starting at 9 p.m. Pacific time at thekingdomofnigh.com, talkstreamlive.com, and the Paranormal Radio app. Want to take a ride? Local and live at 99.5 FM. And welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON AM and FM. And we are discussing today, uh, marking the 50th anniversary of the um, Village of Voices case of 1970 to 1972. And we are going to, um, I guess, take a call at this point. We are. Okay. All right. Hello? Hello, you're on WON. Paul, it's Susan Spooler. Thank you so much for coming out to the Flagstaff Dowsers Conference in Flagstaff, Arizona last week. Oh, well, thank you so much for your hospitality. It was wonderful to see you, your family, and all the great people who were there, and especially a couple of people who are going to be heard on the show, people don't know it yet, who were just terrific. <laughs> so. That's right. And I, was, I was so happy to be able to introduce you and Paul, uh, Tom Dongo. I've been trying to get him to come out to Massachusetts for years to come to speak to our conference in, in Lemonster. And we were and he both work on him. Come up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, well, luckily you get to meet him, so that was, uh, that was a big thing. Just wonderful. I was really happy. And he, could, he couldn't say enough wonderful things about you, and he was there for the rest of the weekend, and he says, now we're friends forever. <laughs> <laughs> it was so nice. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I, I can't thank you enough. You have done... And, and last year, uh, the, the surprise commemoration of my 50 years in the, in the paranormal, I will never forget that, I'll tell you. <laughs> of course. Happy to do it. I mean, you, you deserve it after 50 years in the, in the paranormal and all, all that you've done for everyone. And, oh, my gosh. And the commemorative combs were especially useful. 
So, which you still managed to lose somehow. I didn't lose them. I have them in a, in, a, in a special box in my office, and I use them at least once a week, whether I need it or not. <laughs> then I misinformed. Is it, right? Is it, is it that time of the year you have to comb my hair again? <laughs> <laughs> well, Ben doesn't have that problem. Maybe I should do the Mussolini thing like him. Yeah, just know. shave your head. You're good. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> no, Len, I couldn't use the combs. I use it the beard. Anyway. Well, you could use the, actually, still there are rulers also on the back, if you notice. Oh, yes. Yes. So, most useful. And advertising for your website. So. Yes. So, yeah, no, I wanted to, to call in. I've been watching, I've been listening to the show. I just wanted to call and uh, thank you because I'm finally home and awake and alert enough to uh, to uh, make big uh Oh, I know, the jet there. lag. But uh, thank you so much again, Susan. It's so great to see you. No, absolutely. Thank you. And, and we'll be in touch uh, with everything else moving forward. If you need any contact information for anybody, let me know. Excellent. Thank you so much. All right, you take care. I'll okay. You guys are awesome. Thanks. Bye-bye. Susan Spooler, everybody, Renaissance lady. Okay. So uh, the second trip to the Pomfret case uh, was um, on October 30th and 31st, 1971. Now, of course, Halloween, that was not planned. This is the only time we had to do it. Um, I deliberately replaced several of the team members, uh, and we included uh, Army veteran and uh, professional skeptic Marcel Mercier, and Louis Latender and Bob Zachary, uh, both fellow seminary students. Uh, the first incident occurred as we rode toward the lost village in Marcel's car on the afternoon of the 30th. Uh, between the village of Abington, all, all within the town of Pomfret, and the site, uh, there was a certain fork in the road, and you have to bear left to get to Barahak. Uh, but when I pointed that out, Marcel stated with alarm that he couldn't turn the wheel. Uh, at the very last moment, the wheel snapped to the left, and the car made a turn, seemingly on two wheels, and did not end up in the bushes. Uh, that was quite interesting. Uh, we met up with Harry Chase, the local historian. He filled us in on what other visitors had experienced in September and earlier in October. And there were more stories of voices, out-of-place sounds, and one report of a man uh, followed at dusk by a strange light. I've had that happen in other cases, uh, things that we would call orbs. They change colors, they act in an intelligent manner, and what they are, I'm not sure. So we left uh, Bob Zachary, or Zach as we called him, <clears throat> and Louie at the cellar holes above the brook, Nightingale Brook, where we'd heard the voices previously, uh, with a somewhat more sensitive tape recorder uh, than we'd had on that first trip. And the rest of us started toward the cemetery in the growing darkness. It was very dark with a pale and kind of a waxing moon, but we knew this place like the back of our hands, as a part of the cliche, uh, from our first trip. And by the time we reached what should have been the cemetery, uh, it was very dark. Uh, but uh, try as they might, uh, with spotlights uh, flashing and steps retraced, we could not find the cemetery. It was as if the cemetery had literally vanished. Uh, Zach and Louie were having troubles of their own down by the brook, uh, something pulled Zach's hat off his head uh, while he was working near one of the cellar holes. A flashlight revealed that the cap was uh, was dozens of feet above in the tree branch. Uh, they were trying to get it down when we radioed to them. We had walkie-talkies, of course, uh, no cell phones in these days. Uh, the two dropped what they were doing and joined us uh, up by the what was, should have been the cemetery. Uh, Zach got his hat back the next day. Now, all six of us moved into the stillness that was very black and very quiet toward the cemetery. Uh, as we came to a spot that the next day proved to be not more than 100 feet from the entrance, very close, 
I turned around and saw that Louis and Marcel had stopped. Uh, the rest of us turned back to see what was wrong, only to find that Marcel was huffing and puffing as if he were sick. He complained of a dry throat and a sensation of terrible coldness. His skin was clammy to the touch. Now, again, we were cut off from the world. There were no cell phones in the middle of the woods, in the middle of the night, and I was afraid the guy was having a heart attack. Uh, I said we should leave, but Marcel insisted that he was okay and he wanted to go on, but he couldn't. Four of us found it physically impossible to pull Marcel forward or to the left, which was where the cemetery would have been. He seemed rooted to the ground. At the same time, he found it quite easy to move backwards and to the right entirely on his own. Suddenly, he broke out again in another cold sweat and began to sob so hard that he doubled over onto his walking stick. And he had to know this guy, very, very down-to-earth, um, worked for United Technologies and he's tired for very, very uh, feet-on-the-ground kind of guy. He's not the kind of guy to just start sobbing in the middle of the woods. Now, he didn't know why, he said, but something was telling him that we must not proceed to the cemetery that night. He didn't understand it, was absolutely convinced of it. And the reason I brought the guy was because he was so skeptical. And this is when we heard the voices. It was a group of men who couldn't have been more than 10 feet away uh, in the direction of the cemetery. We could see nothing. All we could hear was the rising and falling of muttered conversation. We couldn't make out what was being said, but we, but we agreed that it sounded like English. Now, I couldn't tell who these men were, but I got the impression of a funeral. And I got a very strong feeling that they knew we were there. We all stood in shock and listened, and then our attention was yanked back to Marcel, who began another bout of sobbing. That was it. I insisted everybody head back to the car. Someone or something went to a great deal of trouble, seemingly, to keep us away from Barahak's cemetery that night. For what reason, we may never know. I got no impression of negativity or hostility. Uh, was somebody trying to protect us, or was this just the multiversal nature of the place? Uh, was there physical danger? There were known to be some poisonous snakes in the area, notably copperheads. Uh, they can be nocturnal during much of the year. Uh, were there one or more in the cemetery that night? I, I don't know. Uh, the impression I did get later on when thinking about our, our multiverse theories that, that, that came about later, uh, were we in a time situation where we were present in some way to people at the first funeral in the cemetery? Were we the reason why the place was considered haunted from day one? Was it was it a multiversal exchange? Was it an intersect point or an overwash, as we call it? Uh, I think that that is a distinct possibility. So whatever it was, um, we uh, withdrew for the night. Now, the next day, I, I want we've got some questions in here. I want to just get through this. Uh, the next day, we had the fam famous encounter with the phantom ox cart driver. It was a bright Sunday morning. Sun was out. Uh, this is in, um, in uh, Halloween. Of course, it was October 31st, 1971. And we were all, there were six of us. We were standing um, on the cart path, and all of a sudden we heard uh, wagon wheels and hoofbeats coming toward us. So we got out of the way. It sounded so real. And it came uh, past us through the woods in an area that had been a road once, and we could hear not only the hoofbeats and the wooden wheels, but a, but a guy yelling, yeah, and the crack of a whip. I knew this was one of the Randalls, and I didn't say that, because it later turned out to be relatives of mine. 
I think that if I knew then what I think I know now, I could have interacted with that, and Mr. Randall would have had a very interesting day in wherever or whenever he was, 1800s, and uh, <clears throat> I think I probably could have changed that. Now, now a number of people have reported that same phenomenon since, including our good friend Tom D'Agostino from Putnam, uh, who has been in this very studio talking about it. So we went to the cemetery. We didn't know what else to do. We just said prayers. Uh, the sun came out. It was very positive. And we had more expeditions in 1972, and I'd gotten to know the owner of the property by then, Doris Townsend, who wrote a lovely book uh, about... She loved the place so much that she wrote a book uh, about one of the young girls there... Um, Robodiah, one of the Higginbottoms, and uh, that's actually, uh, we have photographs of that very spot. So um, the phenomena apparently are still going on today. Uh, many reports of a phantom ox cart. Uh, I could have changed it, I think, and the family is extremely protective of the property, and the aftermath of this is, uh, I was sort of blamed when I wrote about this in uh, Fate magazine in the 1980s and in uh, my book uh, Faces at the Window in 1998, Apparently, uh, everybody saw this and made a beeline and made themselves pests. I had no idea that so many, that, that this would capture the imaginations of so many people. Uh, however, I have done book signings in that area since then, many years later, and I'm assured that all is forgiven. But you never know it uh, when Ben and I went there with a, a bunch of students of ours, uh, in, when was that? 2010 or 2011? 2011, I think. Yeah. And, uh, the, we, we, well, one of our people said he had permission to be there, and apparently did not, or at least there was a misunderstanding, and so we were thrown the heck out by relatives of the owner. Uh, but we made peace later in the day, and I, and I, you know, anyway, the, the people are not welcome there unless they have permission uh, and have some sort of credentials like archaeology or something like that. So, anyway, that's uh, that's the story of that case, and. Um, why don't we go? We have some questions from uh, our our dear uh, friend Peter in yes. Bogota, Colombia. Yes, Peter writes to us after seeing the Harry Chase photos of his living friend sitting on the stone steps with the anomalous effects, such as appearing to have transparent or invisible legs. Did your group attempt new photos in the same spot or near to see if you would get the same transparent leg effect? Okay, uh, that's when we were there uh, initially interviewing Harry Chase. He showed us a photograph uh, from the, uh, matter of fact, the, the very steps where we heard the children's voices by the brook that first night. And there were two friends of his sitting there, and there were two blobs of light. I suppose today you might call them orbs, although very bright. And you could see right through the legs of the people who were sitting on the steps. And he couldn't explain it. Today I might say uh, the, the photographer had captured an intersect point where of of two parallel realities, uh, one of which the people were there, and, and another they were not. Uh, I was talking about that last night during a lecture, as a matter of fact, with other photographic examples of that kind of thing. So um, it's funny. Um, Harry uh, translated in 1974, and it turns out that I inherited many of his papers. But most of them were newspaper clippings and a couple of photographs, and that photograph was not included in uh, what, what I uh, came into possession of. So I have many of his papers, but not that, and I still have all our old correspondence. So that photo apparently has been lost. I don't know if someone else has it. I'd like, like to know about it. So anyway, that, that's unfortunate. 
So that's a story with the idea. And, and we did take some photos around there. We were never able to duplicate that. Cool. So next question, which you kind of answered a little bit, which was in 1975, you returned to the area. Uh, did you or your group experience anything unusual? Uh, that was um, not really. It, it seemed, Since we did those prayers, it seemed to be rather quiet for a couple of years. And then in the later 70s, uh, I heard through the grapevine that, that, that everything had started up again. So whether it was us or something else or the conditions had changed uh, geotechnically or whatever, I don't know. So, um, no, we, we didn't experience much uh, in, in future trips at all. As a matter of fact, in uh, late 72... Uh, we went with the permission of the landowner and we literally slept outside the cemetery. Just perfectly quiet, perfectly peaceful. Hmm. And then the final question is, is there anything that you could do now to investigate this case further? Well, without permission of the owners, uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, what we do uh, gather information about is, is uh, other investigators who have been there. People have tried the EVP thing, you know, had the ludicrous conversations with, with what they think are Mr. Randall and the others. Uh, I, I wasn't theirs, so I really can't say, but it sounded dumb to me when I heard the recording. Uh, there, were, there was a question, too, from several people of whether the Warrens were involved in this case. Uh, yes and no. In 1971, I didn't know, didn't know the Warrens yet. I got to know them in early 72, and uh, my understanding was that they they went they said that they had come to the area the area they talked to harry chase uh harry did not like ed he didn't think he was legit and uh, they went uh toward the um lost village on that cart path that you would usually enter by in those days and they encountered a um serpent of the copperhead variety and uh figured that retreat was the better part of valor so that's as far as they went according to what ed told me so, not really. Pretty hmm. much my case. It is actually really interesting. Yeah. Well, we have 15 minutes. Let's jump into some very heavy questions that yeah. I have. Yes, man. <laughs> so you grew I, up with this story. I did, and now I have questions about it that I didn't. It didn't occur to me until today. Hmm. Um, I do think it's interesting that the the initial approach that you had, um, because considering the time period, right? You know, it's a few years after Vatican II. Everything's kind of thrown up in the air, you know, capital T tradition-wise. Um, and it's it's interesting just because I, I my sort of one point of reference that I kind of know about is the Malus Maleficarum, a.k.a. the Hammer of Witches, which was condemned. But it's a, but it's a really fascinating book if you're familiar with it. Are you mm-hmm. familiar? Yeah. But for those who are not familiar with it, it was a book that came out in the 15th century in Germany. That was a compilation of a bunch of different things, demonology. It was written by a German guy, and essentially it was a guide on how to persecute witches. That was its. its H.P. Lovecraft refers to it in some of his fiction. It is. I mean, it's 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 kind of a fun thing to say the Malus Maleficarum. But yeah, a, it's, it's, it's a got really a ring to it. Yeah. It does have a ring to it, but it's horrible. Um, but it is really interesting because it does actually kind of base a lot of the stuff, the crazy things that it says on. Some theological points, notably of St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, the two big guys in Western theology, right? So there's a very, there's a very, like, legalistic approach to how one views the mystical, which is odd. But that's, that's, that's just kind of what you have, right? You know, St. Augustine, as much as he tried, as much as he, he, in his, his sort of interpretations and writings on, you know, the Old Testament and the New Testament, 
he has a really very specific way that he views things and he you know he just immediately throws anything symbolic right out the window but weirdly he he is a very big proponent of uh incubi and succubi and he he says it multiple times in the city of god and many other works and same with thomas aquinas because he draws very heavily from from uh, saint augustine so you have this very specific tradition that is now thrown everywhere, right? So there was no, nothing mentioned about any of this in seminary at all? Oh, uh, no, not really. Uh, I was told, and I never got this far, that in the Roman Catholic seminary, in your deacon year, which is your last year of theology, there are four years of graduate theological study before ordination, uh, <clears throat> that they'll they'll mention some of this. Uh, as I mentioned in other shows, when I was working with the priest in, uh, at the seminary in Augensburg and at the state hospital, uh, he was one of the few who was chosen uh, because, of, presumably, because of his spirituality and his uh, uh, his aptitude uh, to become an exorcist for the diocese. And there's usually one in each diocese. I knew the one from the Providence Diocese uh, some years ago. And uh, <clears throat> they would be educated in the church's narrow view of this uh, in accord with what theology there is about it and would act accordingly if a parish priest came to them and said, well, somebody's got, you know, the rocking chair is rocking by itself on the ceiling, you know. And so <clears throat> that sort of thing. Um, and no, uh, in at that level of seminary, I was 17 years old. I was in high school. It was the usual subjects uh, with a little bit of very fundamental theology thrown in to kind of get you ready. And the purpose of the the preparatory seminary like that, the minor seminary, was to see if you wanted to really proceed and become a priest. And I did. And matter of fact, uh, in 1971, uh, I moved from the high school department at St. Thomas Seminary to the college department, which was the first two years. And then if you still wanted to be priest, you went on to the major seminary, uh, which I did, but that was an, that brought me to Augensburg, New York. Mm. So, <clears throat> uh, but in that entire period, uh, you, if you had concerns about this, anything of that kind, you would discuss it with your spiritual father. And everyone in the student body had a priest on the faculty who was their spiritual father. Uh, mine said, obviously, be very careful, which was good advice. Uh, the faculty in general was very much against this, is that thought I was too young or whatever. Um, whereas the, the faculty at Wadhams Hall Seminary, when I got there in 1973, was very supportive, uh, which kind of struck me as odd, but they were. They set up uh, special private courses for me in psychology, things of this kind. So um, I guess it depended on the seminary and the faculty, but in, at, at no point was there any formal study of any of this. Okay, fair enough. Um, uh, nor, nor was they in the Orthodox Seminary in the graduate theological level. No, well, I guess if they're preparing you for parish life, there's probably no point in in learning any of it, and it, 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 that would be the logical thing. Well, right? St. Vladimir's, I wanted to do my thesis on this, and you know, and Father John Mayendorf, a well-known name in the Orthodox world, was uh, didn't think that was a good idea. <laughs> Eh, I mean, let's. So I guess with that being said, the the viewpoint of you walking into it was com- almost completely uninformed by anything in that realm. Yeah, only my own reading, uh, particularly that book by Father Thurston. If it was written by a priest, there must be some value to it. Mm. Um, other than that, uh, there had been an article about Poltergeist and Reader's Digest, 
which I read. And, uh, and now in those days, of course, they didn't have the internet. You had to go to the library. So I looked up different cases and stuff, but I, I just had, I wanted to try this purgatory theory. As a matter of fact, it was through this case that I met the Warrens, even though they, they weren't really directly involved with the case very much. Uh, I wrote a thing about this purgatory theory, earthbound spirits being souls in purgatory, and Lorraine thought that, thought that was a fabulous idea. And that's when they contacted me, and that's when we became friends and worked together for six years. Okay, so I guess that that makes sense. Um, so with all all that being said, you know, obviously your views have changed since, right? Yeah, that's that's probably a fair thing to say. What about the other members of your group? What did they say? Did they have any opinions? What what was their sort of final opinion on what happened? That's a good question. Uh, now the only one I was in touch with over the years because he was such a good friend was uh, uh, Louis Latender, who uh, le- became a priest, an Orthodox priest. Uh, Father Joseph Latender, and he uh, is now out in the Midwest in Chicago teaching. But he was kind of with me on a lot of these ideas. Now, when he was on the show in 2016, uh, we I, we did talk a little bit about this. We had to do part of his introduction was that he was one of the witnesses to this case. It was there. He wasn't there for the first expedition, but the second. And um, he still kind of embraced uh, the residual haunting kind of theory and, and the, some of the old ideas. And um, we have not worked together really for many years in this, and so he wasn't part of the evolution of thought that I like to think that I went through and then later yourself. So <clears throat> um, he was not surprised at any of this. We, we were all ra- rather moved, actually. We felt a real connection with the people uh, of this uh, settlement. Uh, we weren't really frightened, even though some of the things were kind of frightening, especially that thing with Marcel. Uh, Marcel himself was was uh, kept his sense of humor about it. Um, it's funny because the, the day after after that incident at the cemetery, when Marcel had those experiences, Harry Chase had called the WYNY, the radio station from Putnam, and um, Mark Silverman had come out, the reporter, and interviewed us. That was my very first time on the radio. And uh, I talked so fast that I just, I said, wow, you know, how can I, I'm going to slow down if any future appearances. I hope I don't do that today. So, uh, the, as a matter of fact, the picture on the uh, bottom right, if people are looking at the video or at the website, uh, that's Marcel on the left. Uh, the two fellows in front became priests. Uh, that's Zach in the middle and the meat of the right. That was taken right after that radio interview. So, uh, he asked Marcel... Uh, who had described what had happened to him the previous night and how we'd been so skeptical. And he said, uh, has this changed your opinion on, on the supernatural? Marcel said, uh, somewhat, yes. <laughs> so, so it was, it I would was, say so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was good. I don't know if that recording is available anyway, you know, 50 years ago. Oh, yeah. But, uh, in any case, uh, that was his opinion. Uh, Zach was, uh, profoundly, um, moved by this. Uh, I don't know. He was a classmate, not a classmate, but he was behind me at St. Thomas, but he was a seminarian. Uh, he did not become a priest. I don't know what happened to him, but um, the the other fellows were, uh, I think we, we were all profoundly moved by the experience of getting to know these people. Hmm. I did, They weren't ghosts, they were people. So that's the best way I can answer that. Hmm. That is a, that, I mean, that is a really interesting way of putting it, because it's, you're, you're experiencing the experience, which is the best teacher. Yeah, and... Uh, it just it was so totally unexpected. Um, 
probably of all the group, I'm the one who expected things to pan out as I, you know, thought the theory would would uh, would would dictate. Uh, but again, these people did not seem to be dead at all, never mind in uh, in purgatory. And I began to wonder about the time thing. Uh, is this more to do with time than it is with death? And at this point, after, you know, 50 years of cases and, and things that, that have seemed to have fallen into place, you know, at the risk of confirmation bias, I think that, that uh, we are dealing with time, which is, is in itself not what we expect. Mm. We experience it past or future, and uh, as Einstein essentially said in 1952, that's not how it works. It's all simultaneous, seemingly, and uh, all all the the, the the findings in physics that have happened since then seem to lend credence, I, I think, to the idea that we're dealing with uh, parallel worlds rather than dead people. Mm. Yes. And you yourself have had experiences uh, since you joined the the work in, in 2005. Ah, uh, yes, but it's not my my 50th anniversary of a case. <laughs> no, well, it will be your uh, 20th before too long. Whew. Yes, indeed. Well, I think that's a great thought to end on, and we can just okay, yeah, because we, oh, we, right, yeah, right. we're we're running out of time. Burned up the hour pretty fast, huh? Look at that. Well, it's uh, I still sit at my desk and, and contemplate this, and, and it was a it was a really heartfelt experience. It w- wasn't like a haunting at all. It was just like a. Really beautiful experience. Mm. So we have plenty of announcements. Would you like to hop into it, Father? I will. Uh, so on Friday, October 8th, I presented, as uh, our good friend Susan Spooler said when she called, a wonderful uh, uh, paranormal overview at the um, Arizona Dowsers Conference, and we talked about that. And uh, she did a great job organizing it, uh, and I met some great people whom you will hear on the show, particularly Tom Dongo, uh, who was a... Uh, resident of Sedona, which is a famous place from a paranormal standpoint. Mm. Um, so uh, we'll look forward to that. Uh, this Thursday, October 21st at 7 p.m., uh, I'll be back at the Haverhill Public Library in Haverhill, Massachusetts to present on Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong. Uh, this is scheduled to be an in-person and a, a hybrid event. So uh, I don't have the website here, but you, anybody can register. It's free. And uh, you can be in Zimbabwe and still attend uh, virtually, but I'll be there in person. Mm. And time zones you might have a little bit of trouble with. Well, right. Yes. But we'll present once again at the Western Connecticut UFO Conference during the last week of October this year. On Sunday the 24th, uh, we'll do a live simulcast with the conference. This will be an open line show format with Kathleen Martin taking questions from conference participants and our global audience on the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case of twenty or of which twenty twenty one is the sixtieth anniversary. A lot of anniversaries. Um, on the following Saturday, COVID variants permitting, uh, we will present. Uh, no, we won't. We will <laughs> not be presenting live at the Danbury Connecticut Public Library because we both realized that there was a prior engagement uh, that we both kind of dropped the ball on. Yes. But other presenters that week will be uh, Mark D'Antonio, Tom Reed, Michael Stratt, Linda Zimmerman, and Mike Panicello from Connecticut MUFON. Uh, after years of tech problems, all the regular recorded radio broadcasts of Behind the Paranormal from CBS, Achieve Radio, and here on WON AM and FM have been restored to the archives at BehindTheParanormal.com. We better move on to what we've got for next week, Ben. Well, we, yeah, well, you know what? We can hop right into it, and it will be 
an open line show format with Kathleen Martin to mark the 60th anniversary of the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case in New Hampshire with a live audience from the Western Connecticut UFO Conference. You can check it out at danburylibrary.org. And it's free, and it will be in conjunction with the Western Connecticut UFO Conference. And uh, get questions for Kathy on that subject. She's Betty and Barney Hill's niece. Uh, get them to me at paul at behindtheparanormal.com and try to work them into the, uh, into the show that week. Mm. So we leave you today with another thought from the great German physicist Max Planck. Science cannot solve the ultimate mystery of nature. That's because, in the last analysis, we ourselves are part of the mystery we are trying to solve. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. Thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of... Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.